No, it's good to see everybody's here. Uh, we're going to continue to our final uh, session for the day. We looked uh, first this afternoon uh, to be with him, the church removed, and we traced through John's Gospel the teaching of an imminent rapture and the imminent return of the Lord Jesus to take his people to be with himself. And then we moved on in John's writings into the Revelation and we looked at that beginning of the section that's described as the things which must be hereafter. And we saw the Lamb recognized to behold his glory, the answer to one of the prayers of the Lord Jesus. And we saw that the Lord Jesus is going to be given the title deeds to the universe. Now we're going to read in Revelation again now, but this time we're going to jump all the way forward to chapter 20. Now I understand we're missing out a great big section here, and we're missing out uh, basically the tribulation period. The opening of that uh, scroll that we saw this afternoon and its seven seals, the terrible judgments that will befall as a result of that, and they are in graphic detail in chapter 6 through to chapter 19. And it will look at the awful judgment that this world is going to face, and it will finish with what we know as the Battle of Armageddon, and you would have found that at the end of chapter 19. And God's final judgments upon this world, at least at that stage. Now, it is relevant for us today. There are things that are of interest to us. I do think those chapters will have an enormous relevance for a people who, uh, an, an innumerable company of people who will come to salvation. Now, I don't believe it will be those that have had the opportunity and rejected in this age, but I think there are many parts of this world yet that have still not had the opportunity. And an innumerable company, the book of the Revelation says, will come. There will be 144,000 evangelists and a tremendous ingathering. And I think for those people, those chapters of the Revelation will have a remarkable uh, impact, along with passages like Matthew 24 and 25. And they've got some relevance to us, and all the word of God is for all the people of God. But I think they'll have particular relevance for those people in that day. But I want to come to what immediately follows it in this strange passage which has caused so much controversy um, for some reason and caused so much difficulty for believers over the years and so much strife between God's people. If you look at some of the things you read on the internet, um, I remember uh, listening to a lady one night uh, being interviewed and she was being interviewed about the subject of the rapture and she was being held up as an Anglican theologian and she described the rapture this way, she said, is it the figment of the imagination of a renegade Irish Anglican cleric called John Nelson Darby? Now I think she was maybe giving a little bit more credit to Mr. Darby than uh, she should have given to him. There's plenty of others who saw that truth as well. But if you then go on and look at some of these things, the vitriol that you will find uh, is really very disturbing. And we must be very careful not to get uh, involved in that type of thing. And particularly when you come to what we're going to look at now, uh, which is what I believe is a literal 1,000 year millennial reign on this earth of the Lord Jesus from Jerusalem with the nation of Israel at the head of the nations a recovered nation in repentance and them now at the head rather than at the tail and the whole world coming up to Jerusalem and all the promises that were made to them through all of the Old Testament being literally fulfilled and that for some reason is enormously controversial but let's just read uh, and this is the only passage really in our New Testament that particularly deals with this and here it is, and uh, chapter 20, like many of the chapters of Revelation, begin with the word and. 
and that's because it's chronological and it's running through and I think by and large the book is chronological and I see that from here to the end as well after this chapter I think everything else is the eternal state I know some people don't see it that way but I'm afraid I do and the reason nothing that defileth shall ever enter in is because there is nothing that defileth left that could enter in because by the end of this chapter it's been banished to the lake of fire for all eternity so let's read these very solemn words chapter 20 verse 1 and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon that old serpent which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand days should be fulfilled and after that he must be loosed a little season and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I thus saw the souls of them that beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast neither his image neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years and the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection for on such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years and when the thousand years are expired Satan shall be loosed out of his prison now we'll not read the rest of the chapter but the rest of the chapter will tell you that he's loosed that he immediately goes out and deceives and there is a great gathering to him and then it simply says not that there's going to be some great configuration it simply says these uh, remarkable words fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and we told as you go on you'll then read of the great white throne and the other half of this resurrection that remember we dealt with in Daniel the resurrection of the just and the unjust well now this passage tells us there is a thousand year gap between those two resurrections and that is the second death remember he said we just read they'll not be touched of the second death we're told what the second death is it's when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity and at the end of this chapter we discover that the wicked one having had a very brief reprieve at the end of a thousand years and we'll touch on that in a moment as to why he's cast into the second death the lake of fire and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire these are solemn words but we know that God blesses the reading of all his word when you come to the book of Revelation there are a number of passages that deal with time periods most of the time periods in the book of the Revelation are to do with that tribulation and so you will find each of these time periods referred to twice a time and times and half a time and pretty much everybody is in agreement that that is three and a half years a time one times two add two and one is three and half a time three and a half the same period is elsewhere described twice as 42 months 
Everybody seems quite happy to accept that as a literal 42 months. It matches up with the three and a half years. Months in biblical times and in, uh, by the lunar calendar uh, are seen as 30 days. And so it's also expressed in days and it's expressed as 1260 days. And again that's on two occasions. They are six mentions of a period of time. Described either in years, in months or in days, but referring to the same period of time and pretty universally taken to be literal. Now they are the only other serious, there's little bits of five months and various things, but it's trying and large as you go through the book, um, the, the rule of interpretation in my view is wherever possible interpret literally. But then suddenly we come to this passage, people do not want to take this thousand years as literal. We have to stop for a moment and ask why, and we have to have another question. That God is not a God of vain repetition, in fact we know precisely the opposite, the scripture tells us he's not. And yet, in the course of seven verses here, the Spirit of God has chosen to repeat himself seven times, six times. And he's chosen to repeat this expression six times. A thousand years, 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 a thousand years. Why would God do that? Saying it once is enough. You can just imply it for the rest of it. But no. It's as though I believe the Spirit of God realises the great controversy that will come over the centuries, how this will be misinterpreted and misapplied, and fundamentally be taken to fit in to a preconceived idea that originally came through Catholicism, and that sadly, and I'm not here today to criticise the Reformers, let me be very clear, uh, those of you who know me and have heard me uh, know that I believe the greatest Briton that's ever walked the face of this earth was William Tyndall. And the debt that we owe to men like that. And I, I know 200 years ago men recovered certain truths, but let me just simply say this. They were merely standing on the shoulders of giants. And let's be very clear that the Luthers and the Calvins and the Tyndalls uh, and, and these great men recovered the absolute fundamentals of our faith after a thousand years of bleak darkness a millennium since the conversion if it was that in history heaven will declare of Constantine to the day when Luther over a, century, over a millennium later nailed his thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg and the great truths of salvation by, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, based on scripture alone, are absolutely fundamental to our faith. And these men were giants. And men like Tyndall, every one of us owe a debt to them. I sometimes wish the translators of the authorised version had been honest enough to make that debt known in the opening pages because it's perhaps the greatest piece of plagiarism in human history to have not acknowledged Tyndall who fundamentally did more to give you this version of the Bible you have before you today than everybody else added together and how did he pay for it? they took him outside a castle not far from Brussels I've stood at the spot and they murdered him they burnt him at the stake at the same time as throttling him. 
And the last words he spoke were these, may God open the eyes of the King of England. The King of England was a despot called Henry VIII. Within a matter of years of Tyndall's death, he authorised 50,000 copies of the New Testament to be distributed. A godless man like that. And God answered the prayer of a Tyndall. But let us be clear, these men were not infallible. And the Romanist system came about fundamentally, first of all, by the state merging with Christianity. That's what happened under Constantine. Time went by until they appointed a bishop of Rome, at which point the prominence of the state was displaced by the prominence of the church. But the whole thing was based on an amalgam of church and state. And we're going to see some of that in the days that follow. Because while our nation moved away from that and moved to Anglicanism, there still is this great union. And as we're going to see, our head of state is also <coughs> the supreme leader of the Church of England and also a defender of the Church of Scotland here in, 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 without going into the constitutional stuff. You maybe saw the oath that he took the other day on that. And fundamentally the reformers continued with a theological position of the church and the state being brought together. Now I think it is a completely unbiblical position. I think the Lord Jesus made it very clear when he was here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but my kingdom is not of this world. That is one of the biggest reasons, the biggest reason, I do not vote, and I would not get involved in politics. And I believe as God's people, that is where we should be today, outside of it. Fundamentally, they've all put God outside of it anyway. And we'd be better outside of it along with him. And that's the mess that our country's in. But nevertheless, when they come to an explanation of this, there are fundamentally three views. Now, the initial view is that this binding of Satan took place at the cross. And the theory went that he would be bound at the cross for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years the world would be Christianized and the message would have spread. And a kingdom would be established on earth. And that that's what the period is all about. Now that, that held sway from about the middle of the 4th century. Or the middle of the 5th century rather. Uh, and it held sway right into the dark ages until there was pretty much a realization that a thousand years after the cross was about as dark as it could possibly get. And the Christianization of the world certainly wasn't happening. And so another kind of view came across, and that is that it wouldn't be the first thousand years after the cross, it would be the last thousand years before the Lord Jesus came. And by the spread of the gospel, and of course if you look at the great evangelical movements of the 18th and 19th and early 20th century, this started to take real hold and people started to say the Christianization will take place that the world will be converted and that the Christ will return to reign because this will have been achieved by the church here on earth now that was all looking to some extent feasible until two world wars and all the things that have followed and the very nations that were Christianized turning their back on it and going in the opposite direction and these views as called sometimes post-millennialism or sometimes called amillennialism and in particular now something called which is basically to explain away the thousand years and say it's not a literal period of time and it is a period really that just reflects God establishing things on earth and the Lord Jesus will come and there's just one simple coming and that's the beginning and the end of everything but the only problem is that's not what these verses say. 
These verses say that after Armageddon and the tribulation period and all the things that will happen, at that point Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And it repeats it six times. Why have this millennium? Well, let me say a little something to you about how God works. Go right back to the beginning of your Bible. There's a number that God has stamped all over this Bible... And it's a number that he stamped all over your life and mine, and all over society, and all over how our world operates, and all over how we govern and function our lives. It's a very odd number. It's literally an odd number. It's the number seven. And so he created that. We, we spoke today about seven signs in John's Gospel. And we, we could have looked at, at the seven churches, we've mentioned them. And we could have looked at the seven parables, the kingdom parables. And, and, we could, and, and there are so many of these things. But fundamentally, go right back to the beginning. And what happens, God made the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he established a Sabbath of rest. Now I want you to just get this into your head. How God has stamped that on the human psyche. <coughs> I've travelled in business to the Muslim world. And they have a holy day on a Friday. But they operate on a seven day week. And I've been in Israel at that time of the, uh, the weekend. And their holy day is on the Saturday. And they still operate on a seven day week. And then I come over here to the Christianized world. And we operate and we have the Sunday. But we're all operating on this seven day week. Have you ever thought about it? Where does this thing come from? There's no logic to it. Anybody today who's been in some physics or chemistry or physics rather at university and studied, and I said to them, explain to me a day. I mean, you explain a day, no problem. They'll tell me about going round the sun and all the rest of it. And, and explain to me a month. And they'll bring the moon into the question now. And they'll explain a month, no problem at all. And even a year. They are all explainable by the natural phenomenon round about us and the celestial beings and the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're all completely and totally explainable. Days, hours, months, years. Try explaining a week. I mean, it's a, and I say this carefully and reverently, humanly speaking, it's a ridiculous period of time. Doesn't fit into months. Doesn't fit into years. It's just this odd, and yet this is this period that our entire lives are governed by. And when we move off it, I have a son-in-law who works shifts, and I see the havoc that it plays with them. And I had a little spell myself when I was young, uh, as, a, as, a, as a student taking a holiday job with shifts, and I saw the havoc that was played with my life. And it was one of these four-on, four-off type things, and the whole thing, and you just got out of kilter. But our world as a whole, God has stamped this seven on us, and he did it right at the beginning of creation, and he said, six days, and the seventh day is a day of rest. And God viewed it very, very seriously. It was for our benefit and well-being. Then when he brings out this nation of his, he says every seven years, we're going to have a year of rest. He knew that they were a kind of avaricious bunch and they were going to be very keen on making money. And they always have been. They've been very good at it. And he said, but I'm just going to put a little couple of breaks on you. Every seven years, and he said every seven times seven, I'm going to have a year of jubilee. And he says, I'm going to stop the excesses of capitalism going crazy. And every 50 years, I'm going to reset the clock. 
And he stamped these sevens all over that nation in terms of a seventh year. And they disobeyed and they didn't do it. And they wanted to make more money and they worked on the Sabbaths. And well, you can read in the various passages of scripture. You can read what people like Nehemiah did when he tried to put it out. And he warned them, I'll come out and I'll sort you out. And I'll beat you up and send you away from the gates. And I'll not have you doing it. It's all anti-God. And he stamped that and they didn't do it for nearly a half a millennium. They missed 70 of them. And God says, I'll take you out of the land, I'll put you into a cat. It's really important to him. You've got, you've got to get right down to you know, the, the observance of the Sabbath, the observance of the seventh year. It's not a trivial thing. For God, it was a big, big thing. He took that nation and he put them away for 70 years because of all the years they'd missed it, over 490. Every seventh one had been missed. Now, the beginning of John's Gospel, it's where we started today, it's where I'm going to finish. I just lent a young brother at home some, some books and amongst them was Mr Larkin's Dispensational Truth and I did say to him look I wouldn't just go along with everything that's in there and I'm not really just too huge on having seven dispensations and all that sometimes I think we get carried away but I do think in the beginning of John's Gospel in John chapter 1 there's a phenomenal little section which sums up human history and it sums it up by the world's reaction and by uh, the total reaction to the person of the Lord Jesus this is what it says in John chapter 1 it says he was in the world and the world knew him not now if you go to your Bible and turn to the first 11 I know some of you those from Riverside that are, are starting to go through Genesis you'll discover amazingly that by the time you get to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis you have covered the first 2,000 years of human history and they are 2,000 years where God dealt with the nations he had to bring in two judgments he gave them two chances as a God of grace he brought in the judgment of the flood and even after that it all degenerated again and he brought in the judgment of Babel and he set aside the nations after 2,000 years he was in the world and the world was made by him but the world knew him not but then John chapter 1 says this he came to his own and his own received him not and if you go from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Old Testament history you will discover there's another 2,000 years I make no apology by the way for being a 6,000 year age man absolutely 100% no problem at all look I believe that my saviour was three days in a grave and then rose from the dead and my entire faith is based on that miracle so it's not a problem for to believe that God could bring a world into being that looked a lot older than it is and it's only been here for 6,000 years. No problem. If I believe he can take decomposing bodies out of a grave, I believe he can do that as well. He could have made it in six seconds, never mind six days. He could just have to, all he had to do was speak. And, it kept, and that's how he's going to take it out. It's ironic, isn't it? They think it started with a big bang. Go and read 2 Peter 3, it's going to finish with a big bang. A great noise, fervent heat. And they're worried about global warming. Well, I tell you this, in 2 Peter 3, there's going to be global warming already. It's going to dissolve in fervent heat. So for 2,000 years he dealt with the nations. He was in the world and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not. From the taking of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees all the way to the crucifixion of the Saviour, roughly another 2,000 years. But then John 1 says this, But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power 
to the children of God who were born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man in other words you see how did you become a, a children of Israel how did you, you, you came into it's an accident of birth that's all you were born a Jew it was a symbol of it afterwards in circumcision but that never saved anybody and the Bible makes it clear they needed individual salvation be very clear about this while I'm talking about these different ages and different ways God dealt with things be very clear about several things salvation has only ever been on the basis of faith nobody will ever be eternally saved from any age at any time on any other basis than the blood of Christ and by, grace alone, by faith alone by grace alone is a principle that runs right through the whole of God's dealings with men whether it's in the nations whether it's in the nation of Israel or whether it's in the church but God when Israel crucified his son as we've read in John 13 or referred to today having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the uttermost he took them into that upper room and he established there the foundations of a New Testament church and that little group of men were the embryo of the thing and as he went back to heaven there was a hundred and odd of them watched him go and within a matter of weeks there were thousands converted at Pentecost and the church was on its way to them gave you the power to be the children of God who were born not of the will of the flesh or of the will of men but are born of God born again but that's always been God's basis and for 2,000 years God has now dealt with the church I'm not in the business of making predictions but we read earlier today he abode two days in the place where he was Hosea says a strange thing about the nation of Israel he says for two days they'll be down but on the third day Hosea 6 you look it up he says on the third day God will lift them up and what are these things referring to you see this is a God who has impressed upon us and imprinted upon us the principle of a Sabbath of rest six days and a Sabbath of rest when he made the worlds and he put that upon man initially and then when he took that particular nation out of the nations not only did he give them the weekly Sabbath but he gave them it in years and it strikes me that the God who has allowed man to misrule this planet for six millennium now has us on the very brink of a Sabbath of rest and I think this world's going to get its Sabbath of rest I believe it with all my heart that this world is going to see a Sabbath of rest every form of human government has failed miserably every form I know some of you are like me the night my girls were baptised my dad mentioned that they were the sixth generation from his mother's grandfather who was one of the founding members of an assembly in Lark Hall in Scotland an assembly that's just gone out of existence in the last few weeks and six generations is a tribute to the grace of God by the way and nothing else not to the faithfulness of men but simply to the grace of God but we've become pretty affluent and pretty influenced and pretty swayed by some of the things of this world and its thinking and we seem to think that some of the forms of government particularly the ones that suit us and that we like and that have maybe made us affluent are better than others look a system of government where 1% of the world's population have 80% of the world's wealth is utterly anti-God 
Be very clear about it. That is anti-God. God detests such a thing. We're going to read some verses in a moment. I'll prove it. God is the God of the poor and the helpless and the widow and the orphan and those that have no helper. And our world has pushed that to one side in our type of societies and there's no time for it. And I don't care what form of human government it is, it's failed and failed and failed and failed. And where are we today? At the end of six millennium of so-called human progress, we've just had a century where more human beings were slaughtered by each other than in the whole of human history added together. It's not getting better and better and heading to the, heading to the world being Christianized. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Evil man is waxing worse and worse and it's degenerating and it's going downward and it's going backward and it's going to do that right till the end. And that's why I would never get involved in their politics because it's all futile. It has got no possibility of holding this way and turning it back. It is only going in one direction because God has only got one answer to the problem. And it's the same as his one answer to every problem. Remember what we said at the outset of the day, it's all about a person. One man. Everything's about him. And he's coming back and he's coming to rule and he's coming to reign for a thousand years. And he's going to fix the problems. I almost don't know where to start reading tonight. That, that second, the first hymn we sang, you know, after we communal singer, the first formal hymn, if I can use that word. I've never sang that hymn before. Um, but as, we, as I read it, it's a lovely hymn. We'll be, we'll be singing that in Cross House very, very soon. And uh, it's a beautiful hymn. It's very largely based on Psalm 72. I may have looked at that, but it's not that long that we looked at it with the saints up at Peterhead. But Psalm 72 is an amazing psalm because it is probably a psalm written, I think, not by Solomon as it would seem to be, but written for Solomon by David. And it's at the establishing of the kingdom. And it looks at the halcyon days, the best days that they ever had. The best that human government could form in many ways. And Solomon had come to the throne as a co-region. And so the, the psalm starts by speaking about praying for the king, the son of the king. That's very evocative, isn't it? Because we're waiting for the king. And he's the son of the king. He's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords. And he's going to bring to this world a millennium of rest. And the reason it's inserted here without a lot of detail is because at the end of the thousand years... Well, there's a couple of questions. Who's going to be in it? Well, I think there's a whole load of people who are going to be in it. But just to, to give you a little very quick indication, and we want to just uh, watch the time, but just to give you a, a quick indication of, as to who's going to be there, this is, is, there's going to be that uh, 144,000 that you read of in Revelation who, who were evangelists, who went forth and preached, and an innumerable company. And there's going to be what's uh, described in Matthew 25, a, a sorting of the sheep and the goats and how they've been towards God's people in that terrible period of tribulation. And so going into this is going to be those people. But then there's also, I think, going to be Old Testament saints. You could go back and read in Ezekiel. I personally believe Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 30, 32 can really only be interpreted by believing that David himself will be involved. And people like Jeremiah... I think they'll be there and the promises that were made to them will be kept. You see, God has made covenants. I hear an awful lot of things today about so-called covenant theology. And you would think that there was only ever two covenants. 
you think that God there's this covenant of law and there's a covenant of grace and that's it well that's not true in fact there are actually hundreds if you just look up the word covenant but the Bible has been very helpful to us because what it's done is it's, it's put them into little bundles and when something significant is happening the word is used again and again and again it's just like the six thousand years sorry the thousand years the thousand years it does the, the Holy Spirit does that to impress things on us first time you get it is when Noah comes out of the ark and the covenant that was made, well it was a beautiful thing wasn't it, I'm, I'm not going to get over sentimental about it, but I did think it was very poignant to see those two pictures, one over Windsor Castle and one over Buckingham Palace of those rainbows set in the sky when Her Majesty passed away but you know, those rainbows are very significant, whether or not there was any significance in that moment, well that's for others to determine, but the significance of it is that God made a covenant, a covenant of life. It was irrevocable, it was one way, it had no dependence on us thankfully. And he simply said, I'll never do what I've just done again. Life will continue, harvest, springtime, summer, winter, it's gonna, and so it has. And God has been faithful. When you come to Matthew's Gospel you get a genealogy and the genealogy says to you right at the outset it says he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it gives you two little moments and it says I'm going to pop these two fellows in there. It's totally vital to see that Christ is a descendant of both Abraham and David. I wonder why that is. Then it gives you a genealogy and it gives you another big step, a big bit of help. It says, and why it would say this you wonder, it says uh, so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. And there's another 14, it says, from David to the carrying away into captivity. Just keep that one in your head. And then it says, and there's another 14 from there to Christ. And the Spirit of God is pointing out to you major milestones, huge milestones, big milestones of what? Of covenants that God made at exactly those precise moments. And I see no evidence in my Bible that any one of them has ever been revoked. Abraham. Abraham, here he comes along with Lot. God says, have a look at it all and see. What they look down there, they look over the plains, looked in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, it's fantastic, it'll be great. Abraham said, if that's what he wants, he can have it. I'll go the other way. Then God says to him, Abraham, let me tell you something. Don't just look left and right. He says, look in all directions. Look up the way, down the way, north, south. He says, you know what, Abraham, I'm going to give you the lot. It's all yours. Not now a covenant of life, a covenant of land. He then put that covenant in place. We get the expression, you know, you talk about cutting a deal. You know where it comes from? It comes from God and the deal that he did with all those animals that were cut in two. And Abraham. Do you know where Abraham was when all of that was happening? Fast asleep. You got that? Fast asleep. It was a unilateral covenant in one direction. It said, Abraham, you and your descendants will get this land. And it's never been revoked in any way, shape or form. Then along comes David. The grace of God's wonderful in these people. David comes along and he's a contemplator, he's a thinker. He's out there at night and he's looking up at the stars. And I love David, there's just something about him. I know he made terrible mistakes, but i tell you this. He was called a man after God's own heart before the mistake and he was still called a God, man after God's own heart after the mistake. God's far more gracious than we are, thankfully. Or we'd all be in big trouble. And along comes David, he's got the best of intentions and he said, Lord, I want to build you a house. And the Lord says, never mind that David, I'm going to build you a house. 
not a temple with stones that's going to get torn down one day and it's going to cause you so much grief and when my son comes he's going to actually say they've turned my father's house into a den of thieves no 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 I'm going to build you a dynasty David you know what I'm going to make a covenant with you David not now a covenant of life not even a covenant of land a covenant of leadership and he says David you and your descendants let's get this clear you will reign from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth forever well it sure ain't happening now so how's God going to fulfill that but then there's another one to the captivity and then if you look at their genealogy you'll see it's around the time it says of Josiah and Jeconiah and his brethren and now you'll turn to the book of Jeremiah we've already been there today in just a couple of chapters uh, you'll go to chapters 33 and chapter 34 and God comes along and he says I'm going to make another covenant with Israel but this time it's a covenant that I believe you and I come into the good of it's called the new covenant and I believe that we've come into the good of it and when we remember the Lord Jesus on a Sunday morning it's all tied into that. But first and foremost it was made in Jeremiah's day exactly at that moment, at the moment of the captivity exactly as they're being carted away by Nebuchadnezzar and it all looks lost and it all looks over this time it's not a covenant of life like Noah and it's not a covenant of land like Abraham and it's not a covenant of leadership like with David do you know what it is it's a covenant of love he says I'm going to write them not on cold tables of stone I'm going to write it on the fleshy tables of your heart he says I'm going to make you my people do you notice what's not been mentioned yet well the big one's never been mentioned the covenant of law what's it all about it's entirely different it was not a unilateral covenant there's two words that mark the law if then if then if then you go back and read it and see what happens comes to that nation and he says you know what I want you to be a kingdom of priests that's what we're going to be by the way they said oh no they started off by rejecting the priesthood being shared equally and they had to have a group of priests and a high priest then they came along one day and they said we want to have a king just like the nations and they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed and they made the covenant of law and they asked for it and they wanted it and God gave them it but it was a bilateral covenant if, if, if and so when you come to the book of the Hebrews and it basically tells you that the old is being done away with and that the new is coming in and that the old is finished it is not in any way, shape or form negating the promises that were made to Noah or to Abraham or to David the only thing it's negating is the law and nothing else it's very important to understand that and yes it sets aside the covenant of law and it replaces it with the new covenant and we have this wondrous wondrous well it's just typified I'm just going to give you the peak of the mountain that instead of this tabernacle that says here's a door and here's an entrance and here's a gate and keep back, keep back, keep back, keep back you get to Hebrews chapter to 10 and he says here's the difference therefore he says draw near with a full heart and with full assurance <laughs> come right in not to their holy place once in a year come right into heaven itself through the work of Christ 
And so all of these promises that were made are going to be fulfilled. And all of these problems that we face, here's what we're sitting with today. I was going to say more about this, but maybe it's fitting that I haven't. We're sitting here today with an energy crisis, no doubt about that. And we're sitting with an economic crisis. And we're sitting with an environmental crisis. And I know that there are some Christians for some reason want to poo-poo all of that. Well, you go out there and tell the poor souls that Stephen Baker is working with in Pakistan tonight. That there's no such thing as global warming and we don't have an, a, 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 an environmental crisis. You go out and try and tell them. We're sitting in our comfortable west and theologizing away and coming out with the most ridiculous analogies that are so anti-biblical that they're off the scale. And we have an ecumenical crisis. We have huge world religions. And we have an ecological crisis. And we have, undoubtedly, we have brought upon our own heads catastrophic incidents, including the virus that we've just been through, including the so-called mad cow's disease, including AIDS, all brought about by what? Defying nature and going against the natural world. And bringing disaster upon our heads. Do you know what, as I read my Bible carefully, I discover this, that God has a remedy to every single one of those problems. You know, that hymn that we sang, it spoke about the Jew coming on the mountains. and That's what it's telling you. In you know, Do you know what the world's answer to the so-called population problem is? Do you know what it is? It's the murder. Tens of millions of unborn children. And I use my words carefully. I mean every word of it. Little wonder our nation's in the gutter. We've exterminated more unborn children than Hitler put through the gas chambers. Over 7 million of them since the 1960s. One of our members of parliament, a son of the manse, who introduced the legislation, said years later, I never thought it would end like this. Well, he was told at the time. And maybe as he's getting close to meeting his God, he's going to have to start to think about it. But our nation has killed 7 million children before they were born well God's the God of the children of the needy and him that hath no helper and God is going to make provision for them I'm only going to read one passage there are so many I could read but I'm just going to read you some words from as I think the word of God speaks more eloquently than I could ever speak of this I, I don't know how people explain this away there's nine chapters at the end of Ezekiel with graphic detail of a temple that's going to be there in this millennial day well if it's a figment of people's imagination that's nine completely wasted chapters because there's not anything of any value in them other than that there's huge sections of Isaiah the most quoted and perhaps graphic and marvellous prophecy in our whole Bible is in Isaiah 53. It includes the last three verses of 52. An amazing book, Isaiah, 66 chapters, and it divides like an Old Testament and a New Testament into 39 and 27. The 27 chapters at the end, they begin with a prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist, just like the New Testament. The second last chapter at the end speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, just the way the New, the old, the new Testament finishes. Those 27 chapters go into three groups of three. They are predictions, first of all in the short term, then the last nine chapters are predictions of the long term, this millennial kingdom. But the middle ones, they're dealing with a different problem. The first nine chapters 
over that tw- those 27 are dealing with the problems of their enemies in the short term the problems they faced with the Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians and everybody else the last nine as we've said are dealing with the problems they'll face at the end of the age the things that are covered in these chapters that we didn't look at today in Revelation what about the nine in the middle they're covered with the problem that Israel doesn't want to face up to the problem that our world doesn't want to face up to because you see in all these crises the energy crisis, the environmental crisis, the economic crisis do you know the biggest crisis of all? the crisis of evil wickedness, sin and that's man's big problem and those middle nine chapters deal with that and right in the middle of the middle section is Isaiah 53 and right in the middle of the five stanzas here's the central stanza he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his strike we are healed who's saying that? it's not you and me I know we can apply it but it's not you and me the beginning of the prophecy of the servant tells you who hath believed our report it's a famine I'm passive in other words it's a report that has been given to them it's for them Paul puts it this way what advantage is the Jew much in every way for to them were given the oracles of God and the promises of God are yea and amen and he's going to fulfil them not with the unrepentant group that are there now but with a group who were able to say now we couldn't say this because we, didn't, we were heathens we were strangers and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel without God and without hope in the world we didn't esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted we wouldn't have known anything we were nobodies and nothings but they did they esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted but one day they're going to realise well Zechariah I wish I had time to look at more of these passages Zechariah puts it this way it says they shall look upon him whom they pierced and there'll be a morning and there'll be a morning that goes right through that and they realise what they've done and they're on the point of extinction and there's been another holocaust and I think there's going to be something like 15 million of them exterminated this time that's what I think you'll find in chapters 6 through to 19 if you look in detail and they're on the brink of mantra you don't believe in the sovereignty of God I had a brother say this I can sum it up in one word Israel without the sovereignty of God they just simply wouldn't exist mankind has spent 2,000 years trying to wipe them off the face of the earth and they're not finished at it yet the despots in Tehran and other places yet want to shove them into the sea and wipe them out and they'll come to the brink and millions more of them will have perished and this evil beast who seemed to be their friend to start with will have risen and he'll turn everything against and the whole forces and rages of evil of this world you know why are the most unlikely of people all joined together by one common thing a hatred of the nation of Israel because they're of their father the devil that's why and sadly bad theology has had unintended consequences and bad theology of Israel being written off and getting what they deserve and bringing it upon their own head this blood be upon us and their children of course that explains many of the things that have happened to them but it does not justify them look God brought Babylon to carry them away and then what did he do? he judged Babylon for what they did to them I don't know why we can't learn these lessons of history and I'm just going to read you some verses and I don't know how you can explain this in any other way 
There shall come forth, this is Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's what we were looking at today, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. They shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither he shall judge, rather, shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But if with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity. One percent won't own eighty percent. Then I can absolutely guarantee you. And the middlemen will be finished. The middlemen who exploit the producers. And buy it off them for a pittance and they can barely make a living as they produce it. And then mark it up and sell it on to the consumers. The free market so called. Where the people who produce it and the people who consume it are absolutely oppressed by the men in the middle. It will all end. The God of equity will say no that's not how it's going to be. And they'll sit under their own fig tree, he says, and they'll sit and he says they'll work and they'll get the labour of their hands. And he'll judge with equity, and the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And Mr. Putin and his hordes will not pour into places like Ukraine anymore and take them over, because he'll step in in judgment and stop it in a moment. And the righteous shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. I don't know how you can spiritualise this away. You see, that's the problem with Isaiah 53, by the way. I just say this in closing. I have a Jewish friend, I sat with him one night in the airport in Brussels, I read him Isaiah 53. Never heard it in his life. But the rabbi explains it all away. He says it's the nation. Oh, they're happy to look at the second coming and take all the prophecies literal, but as for the first coming, they explain them all away. Well, my dear Reformed brothers and sisters, they want to do exactly the opposite. They're happy to take literally all the prophecies of the first coming, but all the ones of the second coming, they want to explain them away and find them in the church, and it's not literal, and it's not real, and he's not really coming to Jerusalem. Well, my Bible says he is. Says he's going to his second says he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. There's a river going to come out. An amazing river. It's going to flow in winter and summer. It's going to flow from that city, from Jerusalem, in that arid part of the world. It's going to go, Paul and I were there. Where is he? I can't see him now. There he is over there. We were in that sea, that dead sea. Poor sister went in and she thought she would go in and experiment and she flipped over and she couldn't flip back. And Paul and I dashed in to try and get her out. And we got that horrible stuff in our... It was everywhere. And there was a hotel next door. And we came out. I says, oh, just run and jump in the pool. So we did. We just ran and jumped in the pool. Took half of the dead sea in with us, I think. <laughs> but you know it's called the Dead Sea for a reason that river's going to flow to that sea that's the, that's the Hinder Sea but it's also going to flow to the former sea that's the Mediterranean I don't want to put you off your holidays I stood down there one day at Monaco looking out on the sparkling there it was and a colleague standing next to me says it looks nice doesn't it I said yeah it does he says yeah the problem is when all the waste and all the sewage from all the nations round about goes in the neck at Gibraltar is so small it takes 20 years to get out to the ocean he says it's 1% of the world's water. That's the thing, isn't it? They're spending billions running around the universe tonight while children die all over the planet. They're spending billions to try and prove there's no God. Do you know what they're searching for? A bit of water. Hey, the Mediterranean is only 1% of this world's water. 
it's got 5% of the pollution well there's a river flowing out of Jerusalem and it's going to flow into the dirty sea and it's going to flow into the dead sea and it's going to cleanse the dirty sea and it's going to bring to life the dead sea and he's not going to need to exterminate the unborn because he's going to make provision for them and there's going to be no poverty and there's going to be no pollution because we're going to live a simpler lifestyle by the way where are we in all of this well I just want to be very simple now you've heard what I've said today I utterly see a distinction between the church and Israel but I'm not going to become obsessive about it when the scripture says when the Lord comes to take me home tonight if that's what was to happen tonight so shall I ever be with the Lord well I have no doubt my Lord's coming back and if he's coming back then I must be too because I'm going to be forever with him it's as simple as that that's how I view it now some might see it grandiose and want to make distinctions well we're coming back in my view always use it as a good excuse to tell Louise you don't need to worry about going to the Great Wall and all that cost a fortune you'll be able to do it in the Millennial Kingdom no problem <laughs> a lot cheaper well whether or not that's true by the way that's just, just a passing comment don't forget everything else just remember that as we close but look at what he says he says a little child shall lead them the cow and the bird shall feed their young and shall lie down the lion shall eat straw like the ox you see people are trying today to bring about these things by vegan movements young Christian don't get involved in any of it it's all man's futile attempts to bring about Eden like conditions without repentance and faith in Christ without a need for the righteousness because the whole thing Psalm 72 says this here's what really marks it above everything else righteousness and peace and our world doesn't have a shred of peace tonight because it's not interested in righteousness you'll only have peace in your life if you get your sins forgiven on the basis of righteousness and that's how it's going to be for this world look there's so much more to say on this but I just hope we've got a God is going to send his son he's going to come back to this world he's going to give them utopian conditions and you know what's going to happen at the end of it when the wicked one is loose they're going to rebel again they're going to prove conclusively that it's not their conditions it's their condition that makes men sinners it's not their environment it's the heart of man that's deceitful of all things and desperately wicked as we were looking at with the young folks last night and they'll rebel again and it won't be some great conflagration it just simply says God will send fire and devour them and then into the lake of fire and eternal damnation it's solemn things aren't they but the world is going to get its sabbath of rest and the pollution will be dealt with and the poverty will be dealt with and the provision will be dealt with and there'll be plenty and the poor will be taken care of and there'll be equity and there'll be justice and there'll only be there will be a, a, a real ecumenical movement for want of a better word to him shall praise be made and nobody else one God one Lord all this religious warfare that's bloodied the world for centuries all finished as everyone acknowledges that he's the one true God and that's it people will live for a hundred if people die at a hundred it'll be because of sin health care and the crisis and the health that'll all be dealt with it's all sorted he's going to fix it all there will be those that are born in it that's why sin will raise its head that's why there'll be those that are still rebelled and when the time comes they'll sweep again after the wicked one but as I close it says the suckling child shall play in the hole of the ass the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice den they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that day 
there will be a root of Jesse we shall stand for an ensign of the people to which shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of the people which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and Pathos and Kosh and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and the islands of the sea. He'll set up an ensign for the nations. He'll assemble the outcasts of Israel. Gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners. The envy of Ephraim shall depart the adverse. How do you spiritualize all that away into the church? It's ridiculous. He says, every promise I made to them. You see, I tell my dear reformed friends, I'm more reformed than you are. I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. His promises are yea and amen. And what he promised to Abraham will happen. And what he promised to David will happen. And what he promised to Jeremiah will happen. And God will fulfill it all. And in his goodness and his grace we'll be with him. Because this creation tonight is groaning. And it's waiting for him. It's yearning for a man to come and put right not only what Adam put wrong but far far more besides he's going to recover far more than Adam ever lost. You and I are going to be a part of it. The first thing is he'll come and he'll take us to be with himself and it could be tonight. We'll be with him. And we'll behold his glory. We'll see him inaugurated. We'll see him take the title deeds to a universe. <laughs> we'll see the lamb freshly slain come forth uh, with the marks of what he did. He's not only the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, but he's the one who's prevailed to take the book and to loose the seals thereof. We'll see him put an end to this world's wickedness. And we'll come with him. That's what these Thessalonians are told. He'll bring you with him. I don't think that means with him in resurrection. I don't think it even means with him as, as uh, the saints who are coming from glory without bodies yet. I think it means when he comes to this world to rule and to reign, we're coming with him. And if we're coming with him at some point, he's going to collect us and take us to himself first. And when he comes to this world, the creation's groaning and it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. To them gave it the power to be called the children of God who were born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of men but we're born of God and we'll be with him and we'll be like him and we'll rule with him and we'll reign with him for a thousand years and then says Peter that's really only the beginning because it's really an eternal thing it's an abundant entrance into an everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ what a wonderful prospect we have in the midst of the horror of what's happening in our world and as you see the transitions of power and those of us that are older look on with heavy hearts and I wonder whether their majesty will ever I think as a nation will never see our likes again and I said today I wonder if it's God's last little flicker of decency been extinguished in our land as we seem to be going headlong in the opposite direction and anti-God the things we're teaching our children put it, it's just, it would break your heart well you and I can rise above it and look beyond it and see the prospect that we have he's coming for us we'll see him inaugurated and he'll bring us with him to rule and to reign and he'll reign in righteousness and peace and we give God thanks tonight for the wonder of his blessed son shall we pray Father we praise thee again for the opportunity to be together we pray Father that will take what's been of thyself these are sometimes complicated and difficult things but Father we ask that that was help us just to see the wonder 
of thy great purpose and plan and to think Father that in thy goodness we are a part of that because thou has brought us to salvation we thank thee for being with God's people tonight we pray for our nation we pray for a new king we pray for a new prime minister we ask that thou would bless them we pray there might be a turning to thee we thank thee for one who spoke of her faith and one who spoke of the Lord Jesus we think of those many days on a Christmas day when so called religious leaders uh, spoke messages that we could barely discern anything Christian from them and yet she would speak glowingly of the saviour and of what it meant and the faith that she had and we do thank thee father and honour the memory and we do pray for those that will follow on and we pray for those grandchildren and we pray in the midst of all the tittle tattle about them we pray father that they might see something and hear something from thy word in these coming days and in thy goodness some of them would be brought to salvation we pray likewise for our government and we pray father that they would all realise that there's a higher authority there's one who sits upon the throne and the most high ruleth in the affairs of men our God we commit ourselves to thee now we pray for thy people remember amongst them there are those who have got heavy hearts there are those who are ill just now we think of a number of fine sisters who are experiencing terrible problems with that awful disease of cancer well, we thank thee Father that these things will all be resolved too by our Saviour but now they're in the grip of this and we pray for them and ask for thy blessing on them and those that are not known to us tonight we thank thee they're all known to thee and so we pray for thy weary heritage across this globe and we pray for thy people we ask Father for a great gathering in before this day of judgment we remember the words of our Saviour the acceptable year of the Lord precedes the day of vengeance of our God and we pray that many would still come to salvation in this acceptable year of the Lord now we commit ourselves to thee, pray for thy blessing, remember the company here, the other companies in the area, we pray for the building up of thy people, we thank thee for the evangelical outreach in this city of Aberdeen, and we pray our God that thou will bless it, and that many will come to salvation. And so we commit ourselves to thee now, and ask for thy blessing as we part, and we do so in the alone, worthy, and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I thank you for your time and listening. I apologise particularly to my grandsons for going over the time. Uh, it's going to cost me a few football cards, I suspect that, but there we are.